Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together, and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, friends. Today's remembering interview is really something special, and I want to tell you a little bit about who I'm talking about before you tune in. I'm chatting today with Dr. Ryan Huey. Ryan is a medical oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he specializes in treating patients with GI cancers. He's a graduate of TCU and the University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner, and he's a Tulsa native. Ryan lives in Houston with his wife, Reagan, and their two young boys. And I happen to know that in 2001, his AOL screen name was SkiRai85. <laughs> That's just for a few, few people that are listening that also remember SkiRai85. <laughs> Ryan and I talk about what happens when our stories shape and intersect with our professional lives, how what we live through influences our hope, and how we take that with us to work, how God uses our grief and our stories for the good of others. I can't wait for you to hear him. Please listen all the way to the end where he will, in fact, quote Kevin Durant. Hi, friends. I'm so happy about this interview right now. As I was preparing for it, I was thinking there are two people in the world who still call me by my childhood nickname, which is EK. My middle name is Kristen with a K. And when I was younger, and even to this very day, my papa still calls me EK with great affection. And I love it. But the other person in this great big world who still calls me EK and then subsequently, my daughter, EJ, is the one and only Ryan Huey. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And I also feel like I do so with great affection, just so you understand. Thank you. Thank you. I, I take it as such. So, guys, Ryan falls into the category of friends who know some stuff about you. Uh, I was thinking about this, Ryan. I have memories of you from Sunday school at the old church building. So that means we're creeping up on 30 years. That's a long time. I'm We've had def- some seasons too, right? We don't have to go there right away. That's uh, fine. <laughs> okay. Ryan's but we've been friends long enough and, and to, to have those seasons, and I, I think that's great. Yes. It's a treasure. It really is. It is a treasure to still call you one of our dearest friends. So he is one of my husband's dearest lifelong friends. And yeah, just really special for me to get to help you tell your story and talk about your work today. Would you first, Ryan, just tell us who you are and who you do life with? So (laughs) my day-to-day life is I have two jobs. I am a doctor and I have my family. And in that context, I'm husband to my lovely wife, Reagan, and a dad to our two young sons. And in my other life as a doctor, I am a medical oncologist, which means I see 
patients who all have cancer. In particular, I happen to see patients that have GI cancers. So I'm the guy that gives chemo. I'm sort of one of those people that nobody ever really wants to meet, but you know, I don't take that personally. So you have two little boys and they're how old? They are four and two and they are such a delight. They are, are changing all the time and just are, it's, it's super fun to, to get to be their dad and get to play little tykes basketball with them and teach them new things and read them stories and run around and get tackled and all of the things that come with having two rowdy boys in the house. So yeah, we're rocking and rolling and, and kind of loving life at this point. Tell us a little bit about Reagan. How did you guys meet? Reagan was the roommate of one of my medical school classmates. So we were kind of living in a little bit the same circle, but diff slightly different worlds, I guess. We knew each other a little bit. Went out on a date that didn't lead to subsequent dates long ago, but we both up and moved to North Carolina separately from one another and happened to reconnect and started dating. And the rest, as they say, is history. We lived in North Carolina for a few years, and now we live in Houston, Texas, where we've been for the last seven years. Ryan, when we were talking about you being on the podcast, when I called you and was saying, would you be willing to do this? We talked about just kind of naturally the theme of grief and how that's traveled with you for a large portion of your life. And you actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you used the phrase when you were talking about your job as an oncologist, you said, I deal in grief. Everyone that comes to see you, like you said just a minute ago, is not happy to be there or is walking through something traumatic, something difficult. But what's unique and special to your story is that you are not unacquainted with grief. You know what it's like to walk through hard seasons. And so we just wanted to talk a little bit about your story and how that connects to what you do now, how that connects with all that God's doing through you. So would you start by just telling us about how you grew up? Tell us about your family in Tulsa and life growing up. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Tulsa to two wonderful parents, Rodney and Linda. I am an only child, which I, I don't know that I hide from people, but also don't kind of go around shouting from the rooftops, perhaps. Why um, is that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it, there's there's some sort of stigma out there, I suppose, but I'm I'm very comfortable with being an only child. It was great. And so born and raised in Tulsa, my family was from Texas. We did not grow up around family in Tulsa. I very much grew up, you know, going to kind of the same school forever. I mean, I, I was like one of those kids that when we had high school graduation, I'd been there K through 12. My Dad, Rodney, was a physician. He was an internist, actually. I think from a young age, perhaps, I probably told some grade school teacher somewhere that I wanted to be a doctor, and I probably tried to pretend like it wasn't because of my dad. But as all of our kids are used to learning what their parents teach them and what their day in and day out life is, I, I now know that perhaps is not quite as true as I thought. Um, my mom... Uh, was a teacher for a long time before she retired. She taught first and second grade. 
And that was kind of the the backdrop of my life. We we grew up at Asbury. That's how you and I, of course, know each other. And I've I, I went there as as long as I can remember. You know, when you're talking about being an only child, I think you're really one of the least only children, only children. And that like you had so many friends. There were people around all the time. My parents probably had a lot to do with that. They were very welcoming to all of my friends, and I was really fortunate to grow up in a house where they wanted to take my friends out to dinner, and they wanted to have them over or take them on a trip or vacation or what have you. And so, to your point, I think I I really benefited from having a lot of folks in my life, and, and people, I think, probably came out most, you know, over to our house to hang out with me, but they really liked my parents, so that, that was a that was a really good thing for me. Your dad had like a presence about him that was so easy to love. Like as as kids, there was like a little bit of a magnetism toward him when we were students. And that can't be true of all of our high school friends' dads, you know? I mean, there are some great guys out there. I'm just saying there, there really was a quality about your parents that we felt welcome. We felt like we could be playful. We could be ourselves. And that's a big part of, I think, your dad's legacy. Yeah, they they did create a really safe space for people to to be themselves and open up. And there are a lot of my friends who consider my parents to sort of be second surrogate parents of sorts. And mm-hmm. for things like hard conversations or, you know, life advice. I mean, there were a lot of folks that would call my dad for some sort of life advice at some point or another. And and it was pretty obvious why that was the case. I think they felt safe kind of telling him things, and he was a pretty good advice giver. So, Ryan, as we're talking a little bit about your dad, I wonder, would you back up for us and tell us about your experience in college and tell us more about your dad and what happened? Sure. So I had a pretty charmed life. I had parents that loved me. I had the opportunity to go to college. I had plenty of privilege along the way, and I'd never really experienced a lot of loss. And college was going really quite fine, I think. I I went to TCU in Fort Worth. It's where my parents went. They were very excited about that. We very much loved having that in common. And there not because of where I was, but because of the season of life, I started to experience my first loss. I remember perhaps this kind of started with one of my campus pastors for the campus ministry that I was going to called RUF actually got in a tragic bike accident. And after a bit of time of trying to recover, ended up passing away. And it was my junior year of college. It was a pretty meaningful event because he was fairly instrumental in my life during my sophomore year. There were some challenges that I was having as college kids do, and there were some questions that I was having in my faith and that I was just in a curious time and so had the opportunity to sit down with him quite a bit and develop a strong relationship to talk through some of those things, and we had kind of a wonderful weekly lunch for some time. And then sadly, this event happened and and he died. And I went to his funeral and I had not gone to many funerals in my life, perhaps a great uncle here or some other, you know, somewhat distant relative there. But 
this was one that really kind of hit close to home and it was very sad. I mean, there was a lot of grief associated with that and, and processing that. And it was very much something that I walked alongside several friends in trying to process and experience that. This is probably the backdrop for what happened in December of my senior year when my dad had a stroke. It was unexpected. He was presumably healthy, and then all of a sudden, one day, he wasn't. And it was sort of one of those moments that you're fine until you're not. And the next thing I knew, I was getting a call from my mother that I needed to fly home because my dad was in the hospital. And I remember asking her the question, do I need to pack a suit? Which was code for, do we think he's going to make it? And she sort of took a deep breath and said, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And so a few hours later, I found myself on a flight home and sort of spending day in and day out in an ICU waiting room. And there were plenty of moments that occurred over those next couple of weeks, but my dad died of complications from this stroke. He died on December 18th, December 21st, we had his funeral. And then there was a bit of a haze beyond that. <laughs> it was an interesting time, right? Because this happened sort of right before finals week. And so it was a busy time in the school year. But, but then all of a sudden, it's Christmas and like kind of nothing happens. And so then my mom and I just sort of spent a couple weeks at home watching a lot of somewhat meaningless college football games on TV. <laughs> but that's what happened. I didn't know the story about, do I need to pack a suit? It was very much the time when I wanted to ask how serious it was, but I didn't know how to ask how serious it was. And so that's how we communicated with one another. Yeah. Ryan, this was a really chaotic and busy time. It was your senior year. I know you were making decisions about what you were going to do for school. If you can think about how you were feeling and processing at the time, what was it like to go back to school, to leave your mom and go back that spring semester? I had a few weeks at home just as a result of it being Christmas break. And in mid-January, it was time to go back to school. And I went and I needed to take finals that I hadn't finished and kind of complete other schoolwork that had yet to be done. And school was a four and a half hour drive away. It wasn't terribly far, but it wasn't terribly close. And I was a senior, right? So I had plenty of friends and things going on and didn't go home too often. But I remember going back to school and finishing some of this work and it was very hard to focus early. I was distracted by a lot of things. I remember making up some sort of biology final and finding myself sort of daydreaming about my dad or my life or something that was going on and, and having a hard time focusing on the task at hand. And it became apparent to me that I needed to go home again. And so the weekend after school started was Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. It was a three-day weekend. And rather than going to the ranch with my friends, I found myself driving home to spend a few more days with my mom to sort of decompress. I don't know that we did anything 
all that special during that time, but it just felt like the right thing to do. You know, I, I was, there's never a good time for something like this to happen, but I was very fortunate to have an incredible community of friends from high school in Tulsa, such as yourself and Dustin and others to support me over those holidays. But then, you know, I also was pretty established in my friend groups in college. So I felt like I had support no matter where I was, but time was the thing that, you know, could only pass as quickly as it could. Hmm. I felt better after that weekend at home with my mom. Things got a little bit easier. I think after spring break, there was more joy in my life, partially due to it being the end of senior year and lots of fun activities going on. I found myself needing to make a decision about medical school. I had been accepted to a couple of schools in Texas and to the University of Oklahoma and needed to decide where I was going to go. And there were many factors that went into that decision, but ultimately the prospects of being closer to home and not sort of starting life over, completely over once again, was very appealing. And so that was a big part of why I went to OU and why I moved to Oklahoma City rather than going elsewhere. And so I don't think there's any question that it shaped the decisions that would be made over the next several months. I want to go back to your mentioning your sophomore year of college and meeting with the RUF pastor and just wrestling with some spiritual questions. And I wonder, looking at that time frame right after your dad died, what was your spiritual life like at all? What, how did you, if any way, relate to God at that time? I think the questions that I had been asking as a sophomore were very much academic questions. I was a religion minor in college and took a handful of courses that I really enjoyed, thinking about various teachings or digging into topics that were fun to debate, interesting to write papers about. I don't know that that strengthened my faith, but I had some fun doing it. <laughs> I'm not sure the pastors appreciated all of the questioning, but I thought it was, in in my way, a really important phase to go through to ask questions and try to be thoughtful about my faith. Yeah. I think after my dad died, I was somewhere on the spectrum of angry or disinterested. Being angry at God sort of feels like you're willing to engage in debate or discussion or even sort of an argument or yelling or something. It it, it implies that you care. And I think that I had a, a decent amount of disinterest after that in trying to find out why this had happened to me and why I lost such an important figure in my life and why he had died and, and all of these other sorts of questions. It certainly did not put me on a spiritual high, but I also don't know that it took me down so much that I was, I was angry and fired up and kind of re-energized me to kind of work through those things. I think there was some stepping back, not total disinterest. I just think that that was kind of how I processed things at the time. 
I really like that honesty. When we think about grief uh, in our faith, I think we have these like kind of caricatures of responses, like the person who's angry and walks away and they never come back to the faith uh, or people that, you know, at least in, I think, Western culture that are like, I'm going to choose joy, which is, you know, kind of equally mystifying. But, you know, for some of us, it's somewhere in the middle or it's a little bit of both. You know, there are days you can like cling to hope and there are days that you think, do you even care? Anyway, I like your perspective. Hope is tough right after a loss because you're really you're you're focused more on the loss than the silver lining. And years later, I have the perspective not really of why those things happened to me, but seeing God work in my life and the life of others over the subsequent years. But that is not something that is afforded to you with immediate gratification. That is something that comes with a lot of time, perhaps patience, other life experiences and the like. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like to follow in your dad's footsteps in the medical field, graduating, choosing medical school, and kind of moving through that phase of your life? My acceptance letter to OU came while my dad was hospitalized. So I recall taking the acceptance letter up to his bedside and reading it to him as one of the things that happened in that two-week period. Mm -hmm. Six months later, I entered medical school, and I remember a few things. Number one, I needed to make new friends, which was a a different experience. I, I remember going through a season where I felt like I couldn't introduce myself other than saying, hi, my name's Ryan. My dad died a few months ago. Mm. And now recalling how bizarre that is, but that was very much what I felt like my identity was at the time. And my dad had been such a part of not only my life, but my friends' lives that to not have him in a new season was very odd. My high school friends knew my dad very well. My college friends also knew my dad very well. And so to enter into a new place where that would not be the case, felt I felt naked of sorts. Mm-hmm. I very much relate and understand to what you articulated about feeling that your identity is somehow connected to this loss in your life and how that identity evolves over time. I very much felt that with Lauren when Lauren died and still do to a certain degree. I think when you walk through grief or a loss of someone who was dear and significant to you, that there is a comfort in interacting with the people who knew that person. There's also some comfort in new people who don't know your identity wrapped up in the loss. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. When I went on a date with Reagan, I hadn't gone on many dates since my dad had died. And I remember sitting there thinking, can I talk about this on a first date or is that crazy? And having this weird internal debate about what the right thing to do was. And years later, 
I can't believe I was having that debate, but I understand what it was that I was going through at the time. Mm-hmm. This was, of course, nearly two years after he had died, but I found myself still clinging very much to that identity. There were actually other people in my life who died during that season. I went to seven funerals in 17 months after really not having been to any in my life. My dad's sister, my grandfather, a friend from high school. So there were many meaningful people that were wrapped up in that time. And so there, there was kind of a lot of repeated grief. Ryan, how did you get to the end of medical school and decide that you wanted to work in oncology? How does anyone choose that they want to work in oncology? So I knew I was interested in working with adults and I knew I was interested in getting to know people over time and developing so-called longitudinal relationships. And oncology offered that and the ability to be part of people's lives at a really meaningful moment. Mm -hmm. Nobody has to convince themselves that going to their oncology appointment is important. For better or for worse, it is. And so it's a real privilege to get to enter into somebody's life at that time. Not to mention the fact that the science is evolving. It's an exciting field to be a part of. We feel like we get to do some good in, in folks' lives. So oncology offered a chance for science that I was very much interested in, but also getting to participate in people's lives in a really meaningful way. What a great way. I had not thought about that before. Because, of course, it takes a certain temperament and personality to care for people in that long-term sense and how beautiful that your experience in that season of grief and a little bit of who you are and who your parents raised you to be shaped all of those things for you. What is it like on a day-to-day basis to meet with people for the first time who are coming into your office because they have cancer? What's that experience like for you as the physician and as a person who's also shared in suffering? I meet people in different circumstances. Some are coming to me for a second opinion and have a great understanding of what is happening in their life with a couple of specific questions to answer. I meet other people and we're telling them their cancer diagnosis for the first time. In many of those cases, we get to celebrate successes of things are getting better in some circumstance, but Other times we have to discuss how things unfortunately have have gotten worse. And we have a lot of conversations with people who are nearing the end of their life. And these are unbelievably powerful and meaningful conversations. It's, It's the kind that if you're going through that experience, your heart races and you're just scared the whole time because they are wrought with fear and uncertainty. And so we try to answer questions where we're able. I freely admit that I don't have all of the answers to every question. We try to let the room and the moments breathe 
because people need that. And we don't hide from the fact that there is suffering and that some news is just terrible. I don't think you have to go through suffering yourself to be able to work with people who are suffering, right? This is very much a principle of lots of fields of medicine or counseling, perhaps as you know, my experience does not have to mirror that of my patients, but there are some deeply personal moments that can happen along the way. It's not often appropriate for me to share my story. I should say it like this. I don't often find the need to share all of my life experiences with my patients in order to have these conversations because my relationship with them is not about me. Mm -hmm. It's about them and their life and what's going on. But especially with patients' family members, perhaps their sons, there is the occasional moment to open up and say, look, I can't imagine what you're going through, but here's what I've been through. And it was also very traumatic. And so, you know, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. That's beautiful. How do you care for yourself in this line of work? How do you have these conversations with people over and over again and yet hold on to any semblance of hope? Some days are easier than others. <laughs> we have lots of joyous moments in clinic as well. The moment after I talk to a patient who's dying and may have a few weeks to live, I talk to a patient who's just completed their therapy, has no cancer, that's active and is doing great. Or we get to deliver more good news to somebody that has a clean scan. And that is the very odd nature of the job. It's challenging. I mean, there are days when you get home and you're just kind of a mess. But I think a lot of caring industries have those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just was talking to somebody yesterday about joy and grief commingling. They always do. You can always hold these emotions at the same time. And I'm visualizing you going from one patient room to the other where the outcome of that experience in that patient room is so vastly different from room to room. And you are walking out in a very literal way how grief and joy can be right next to each other. They can. It's Sometimes you have to walk out of a room and sort of shake yourself and say, okay, I need to take a minute and take a walk really quick and have a few deep breaths before you kind of go in and, and re-engage. I think in doing this for a number of years, you also get to know people over time. And so you have those moments with the same people mm-hmm. as well. And with their families, you have the moments of joy for a number of years, followed by grief and sorrow. And you're bonding not only with the patient, but also their families. I don't often go to patients' funerals. And for some time, there were not 
traditional funerals due to COVID. But I went to one recently and I had known this patient's wife for as long as I'd known the patient and had seen her many times, but also had a chance to meet their adult children and his grandchild. This three-year-old I was joking was very famous in my world because I had seen hundreds of pictures of her, but <laughs> actually got to have the chance to meet her in person. And and it was really powerful to get to meet some of the folks that were important to them and hear stories about a patient who, quite frankly, was very dear to me as well. And so I think that is part of processing. I mean, what a funeral, you know, you're, you're sitting at a eulogy and you realize it's one of these moments in life where everyone is dialed in to every word that's being spoken. No one has their phones out and there's nothing else going on in the world that really matters all that much. And that's a pretty rare event in my life. Mm -hmm. It was forced reflection, which can be uncomfortable, but is really sacred. And for me, helps me to process and grieve and understand how we can best care for people. You are causing me and I think our listeners too to see the human side of their doctors. You know, I think physicians often get a bad rap, but it's really beautiful to hear, you know, kind of behind the veil, behind the white coat a little bit about how this experience of caring for patients impacts you. And as a believer, as someone who professes to have hope in the resurrection, to see how you care for people. Do you view your job as a calling? I think so. I think it's hard. It's hard not to. The job is too hard. <laughs> but I very much feel that there are always ways that I could get better at my job or at being a human or a child of God or what have you. I do feel like some of my life experiences have prepared me well for some of these conversations. But at the same time, there's always an opportunity to, to get better. Mm. When I say that it's a privilege to participate in the lives of these patients, it really is. They give a lot to me. They tell me their deepest, darkest secrets. They tell me the things that they're worried about. They sometimes tell me when they're keeping news from certain family members or how they're processing with things. And that vulnerability comes with a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful team of people to, to work with. This is not a one-man show. This is a, a group of folks that are all working alongside one another. And we have hard moments and have to acknowledge that. But I think we get to do a lot of good in people's lives. Some people are kind enough to tell us that that's true. And those moments really keep us going. What's your hope for your future work? What do you want to be true of you in 10, 20 years when people reflect on their experience with you as their physician? I think that first and foremost, I want to make sure that we're 
clinically taking great care of people. And I'm doing everything I can to make sure that my patients are getting the best possible care. But I think care goes beyond what a treatment plan is. Care is very much how you make someone feel. And I think there's always room to grow and learn from that. I, I try to be my same self everywhere. I don't doubt that there are different sides of me at, at work and at home, but I'm pretty comfortable with everything just kind of fitting into a big pot and stirring it up. <laughs> I think as I've gotten older and my personal and professional lives intersect, I had to become more comfortable with that as well as I've taken care of family members of people at church or other folks that I know. All of a sudden, they don't just know me as Dr. Huey or Ryan. It's kind of both sides of that coin. And the same is true for my kids. And so I think just trying to be myself, no matter the context, I think that there's always room to grow, right? Right now, I'm trying to learn how to be a good parent and listen to podcasts and try to understand how to be there for my boys. And so, you know, sure, there are career aspirations and other things to do, but I think first and foremost, in a, in a patient-facing role, it's, it's very much just trying to figure out how to take good care of people. I love that. You could apply that little phrase to anything, just trying to figure out how to take good care of people. That's beautiful. That's great, Ryan. I know we can't quote Kevin Durant anymore because... <laughs> He he did some bad things to the state of Oklahoma, but he always talked about trying to get a little better every day, and I think there's something to that. Ryan, your story and thinking about what God has done in and through you is beautiful, and you've done a really great job telling it. Really great job. I talk a lot about remembering, but the other piece of that is telling, is telling your story so that other people's hope can be increased so they can remember and connect to God's story in the world. But I want to ask you a fun question, just like something easy. And that is, what's something that you are enjoying or learning right now? And it can't be bookish, so don't talk about your master's degree. <laughs> this is like the easy question that I'm going to make hard. So I'll, Yeah. I'll... Or is there something that you're reading or a podcast you're enjoying? I love my kids, and some of what I'm trying to learn right now is how to beat them in little tykes basketball or how to not hurt myself when we're wrestling, but also how to understand how to parent toddlers, which is a bit of a challenge and hurdle. I do like the Raising Boys and Girls podcast, which I've started yeah. listening to recently. And yeah, that's um, pretty cool. I, I just, it's been insightful and enjoyable to listen to some conversations of folks that have really good insights and can help me understand how to process my boys' sometimes big emotions. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Someone just told me yesterday that parenting is a lot of improvisation. And I was like, you know what? I kind of needed to hear that because it was from someone who I consider really, really wise. <laughs> I'm like, for all the moments we feel like we're really trying, but then we're just flying by the seat of our pants. Like, all right, we're just... Some of this is improv. <laughs> it helps to hear that from someone who feels like they have the book of parenting sitting on their shelf. 
the, that which I'm always searching for that doesn't exist. And you're like, uh -huh. oh, you don't, you don't have it all figured out either. Thanks. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Awesome. Okay. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's great. Love you. Thankful for you and your crew. Thanks, EK.